So my name is Emily Guglielmo. I am a structural engineer at Martin Martin. I've been at Martin Martin my whole career, and I currently manage our San Francisco Bay Area office. Welcome back to the Structural Engineering Podcast. This is the first episode of the third season. It's been a little while. We take a break every year, but with uh, work and the SE test, this year's break went a little longer than usual. Maybe we told listeners, maybe we didn't, but you just recently took the SE exam. How'd that go for you? That's a very hard test. <laughs> really? You know, I don't think I gave it a, I gave it the studying it deserved. It was super fun. I, I got through half of it. Gravity portion is done. I think that portion has a uh, has a higher pass rate, no doubt. Lateral portion was really fun, but man, two days in a row, you're just cooked. Yeah, do you think that gravity has the higher pass rate purely because it's on the first day? I've always wondered this. It might have something to do with it. That back-to-back -back, uh, part of it is pretty hard, but I'm excited to take the lateral only. I think it'll be way easier and, and do a little more studying. Like you, I'm, I'm a little bit behind, but I started studying for the SE and I'm going to be taking it here in April. Nice. So Max, along with studying with the SE, what, what is something we just came out with that may help other people that are studying? Man, you must be reading our newsletter then. Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> That's what I'm exactly what I'm getting at. We just started a, uh, a little weekly newsletter. Hopefully it's a, a little more entertaining than what you usually receive. I know I get a lot of weekly structural engineering updates and news from all sorts of organizations and it can be a little much uh, most stuff in there I'm not that interested in reading so we try to boil it down a little bit we generally do one article just pulled up from every single resource that we get what is the most important thing for us for the week and then uh, with that we also do a quiz yeah the quiz is most definitely my favorite part of the whole thing I think it's kind of fun to see if I know it or not and it's been kind of fun taking turns on putting the quiz together and seeing if we can if we can trick each other. Or... Yeah, some of them I try to make sort of, you know, really nitpicky things in the code, but it's, it's like a fun trivia game. You know, I, I think our averages are maybe 75, 60% people get it right, which is pretty good. So, um, yeah, it's fun digging through, trying to think of good questions. And I think if you're studying for a test, it's like an awesome way to expand your knowledge a little bit. So, Max, this week we sat, sat down and spoke with Emily about seismic provisions. We want to talk with Emily because she does this presentation. I've uh, given it many times, titled The Frequently Misunderstood Seismic Provisions. I saw this, I thought I saw this a long time ago. It seems like um, it's more recent than that, but really fantastic presentation. I think it speaks to all levels of engineers. And when I saw this in NCSEA presentation not too long ago again, I thought, man, we should reach out to Emily and see if she'd be interested in talking on the show. One thing I really enjoyed about this episode is not only did she kind of walk us through those different seismic provisions that people are you know, commonly missing, but she also discussed why they're in the code. And there's a lot of it, good information too within the episode talking about the new ASE 7 that's coming out here in the, in the coming years. Emily is really in the know. She is on the seismic subcommittee. Um, and while we're on that, can I read you her uh, bio here? It's pretty impressive. Yeah, go ahead. All right, so undergrad UCLA, master's UC Berkeley. She's currently the president of the National Council of Structural Engineers, president for the Structural Engineering Association of Northern California, chair of the NCSEA WIN Committee, vice chair of the ACS7 Seismic Committee, and voting member on ASCE7 Wind, Seismic, and the Main Committee. She's given over 100 lectures on seismic wind and building code provisions. Uh, and now with this, maybe we can say over 101. I'm not sure if this counts. She's a licensed SE, several awards, SEI Fellow, Susan M. Frey, 
NCSCA Educator Award, and just on and on and on. Well, let's get into this week's episode. That sounds great. Wait, one more thing. We recorded for a long time and really don't want to cut anything. This happens to us every once in a while, so we're going to cut this episode into two. Enjoy part one. So we're talking today about a presentation that you give, Frequently Misunderstood Seismic Provisions, and, and it's something that I've seen, I think, a couple times, and uh, we thought it'd be a really good presentation to try to bring to our podcast here because there's a lot of valuable stuff. I want to ask first, where, where did this list come from? Uh, are they issues you saw in reviewing drawings or things younger engineers took a little while to understand? I, I think it's um, a multi-part answer. For sure, uh, a lot of this comes from my own experiences where I'm opening the code and trying to figure out how to interpret it, how to use it to do a design on a particular building and using all the resources I have. So uh, there's some self-admission here. Uh, a lot of this is my own um, lack of knowledge and trying to become more knowledgeable. I work at a firm that is very interested in continuing education. So uh, early in my career, I gave some presentations on seismic and had the opportunity to ask a lot of people at my company, you know, what are what confuses you? What would you like um, us to understand better? So at my own firm, I've had a chance to do some reconnaissance formally. And then, as you said, informally, just through drawing review, calc review. Uh, and then lastly, I have the opportunity to serve uh, on ASCE 7 on our seismic subcommittee. So that, that group is responsible for generating code change proposals for our new versions of ASCE 7. So I've been participating on that uh, through a couple of code cycles now, and we get tremendous uh, amounts of good uh, data there in terms of uh, just discussions on what needs improvement or code change proposals from the public that we consider. We hear a lot of new research that's coming into place that obviously brings up questions about uh, how the current code is um, is dealing with things. So uh, it's a long-winded answer, a way of saying that there's no one single source for all of these, but uh, it's just my experience over the last couple of decades pulling together um, hot spots that I've seen in the code. We have a lot of questions, so we'll kick off starting with a misconception. So this is seismic design category A. If I work out of seismic country, there's no reason I would need to consider the weight of my structure for lateral loads. Could you tell us a little bit about what minimum structural integrity requirements we have in seismic design category A? Yeah, and sometimes we interchange seismic design category A and integrity as you just did. And for the point of simplification, we did take seismic design category A out of the seismic chapters, so you don't need to be in chapter 12. And rather, these structures need to be designed um, per Chapter 11.7. And frankly, it's just a pointer back to Chapter 1 in ASC 7. Chapter 1, I think it's specifically Section 1.4, which is about general integrity. It has requirements essentially for load path connections, lateral forces, connections to support, and anchorage to walls. So a lot of those things are a function of mass or weight. So there is a minimum 1% of the building weight in a lateral capacity. We look at beam connections and there we're looking at a 5% wall connections, 20%. And these are a little bit seismic, but a little bit it's just good practice. It's how you tie a building together. So you don't see section 1.4 saying seismic design category A. It says general integrity. Frankly, all of our buildings need to conform, but that section does start to play with mass and weight as it relates to lateral loads. Right on. So I think it's very easy to separate things like R and omega from their physical meaning to a sort of point scale. Starting with R, response modification factor, could you give us some background of what it means and how it's derived? 
Sure, and it's a great question because I think that seismic design is so different than really almost anything else we do in the building or bridge world. We aren't looking at forces at a magnitude we expect to say see day in and day out. We generally aren't in an elastic range. And the R value or the response modification coefficient is how we make a translation. So if I can ask you to create an image in your brain, we're going to do a a, a graph and if along the x-axis we're looking at drift and on the y-axis we're looking at force. Hopefully all of our engineering school tells us if we have linear behavior we have um, a straight line relationship between force and displacement and if we load a structure we get more displacement and when we remove the load we get zero displacement. Following along with these notes gives you a typical linear elastic relationship. And that is kind of the simple way that we do our design and seismic but in reality, what we have when we do seismic design is we start linear, we start elastic, but at a certain place uh, under our design level loads, we see uh, some inelastic behavior in the form of yielding or hinging. And these yield uh, mechanisms absorb energy. They limit the amount of force that can get into our system. Right at the peak, the system starts to yield, but it doesn't fail. And that's because the load is cyclical. When we talk about ductility in a system, we're talking about this space underneath this line. That curve does not nearly reach the same peak uh, force that the elastic one would have. Instead, it pushes over and you see much more deflection. And so we need to figure out a way to keep our analysis relatively simple. That hinging and curving uh, force uh, deflection diagram is really hard to do for an everyday engineer. So what we do is we assume that our building is going to behave elastically. And rather than designing for our full force of an earthquake, we're going to divide that force by a factor of R. And that R can be anywhere, say, from maybe 3 to 8. Uh, that's kind of the range we usually play with. And so that's not insignificant. We take the force we are expecting that our building would see under an earthquake, and we divide it by a pretty big number. The reason that we can do that is we are absorbing energy, as I mentioned, when we hinge, that absorption of energy is limiting how much force can actually make its way into our building. So we're just taking our force, we're dividing by R, and that gives us uh, the actual force we're gonna design for, and we're gonna put our heads down and say, I'm just gonna assume everything's elastic now. I'm gonna ignore all of that plastic behavior, all of that yielding, that hinging. I'm gonna design for an elastic behavior, but I know that when I divide by R, I'm designing for a much lower force. And so the question naturally would be, well, why is that okay? Why is it okay to do that? When we divide by R, particularly a big R, it doesn't come for free. And the cost or the price we pay for a nice big R value is a commitment to ductile detailing in our building. We are committing to putting a system in place that has an ability to absorb energy and to yield without failing. This is a very interesting cost-benefit analysis that you can play. Do I want my big R value and put a lot of expensive detailing into my building? Or do I want a small R value designed for more force, but I don't have to put as much detailing into my building? And in, in seismic zones, we don't really get to choose. We are pushed more towards the high R, good detailing, ductile detailing. But in your mid-seismic ranges, you, you do get to play around with that cost-benefit analysis. R can be related to the ductility we mentioned earlier by a term called implied ductility factor. This is defined as the response modification divided by the overstrength factor. 
These values range from less than one to over two and a half for special systems. Here we ask Emily to tell us a little more about weighing the R of each system. Yeah, so there's, you'll, you'll see when you look at the table in the code, there are certain seismic design categories where you don't have a choice. Um, so you have to use a higher R or a more ductile system. But in your lower or mid to seismic, you do have that option. And you're correct. I've seen a lot of engineers right out of school say, well, heck yeah, I'm going to use this R of eight, this R of eight and a half. And in fact, I'll be honest with you, I've even been brought in in a peer review capacity where I had an engineer come from non-seismic zones, try and bring a, a building into a high seismic zone, picked a really nice high R value, and then and then deferred all of the connection design and said, well, the steel detailer will take care of the connection design. And that is that doesn't work. We can't do that <laughs> because uh, ultimately, it's not just the connections, um, for example, for a moment frame, but there's a lot of proportioning, our beams and our columns. Um, what is our strong element? Where is our link? It is all together in one system needs to be considered. So typically, I would tell you it is not cost prohibitive. It is not the cheapest option to pick a big R value where you don't have to. And there are some reasons we might, but this ductile detailing is not free. It is not simple. It is not cheap. Neither, not for the engineering side of things and, and definitely not for the construction side of things. So I would argue that in a steel world, if you're doing steel design, uh, most engineers west of the Rockies will use that R equals three option. And that R equals three says you can use R equals three and you don't have to detail for seismic resistance. It's kind of a free pass. It's saying let's balance an R that's not one. We'll give you a little bit of an R value, but you don't have to do any ductile detailing. I would I find most engineers and uh, fabricators and erectors and contractors believe that that's the most economical option in those lower to, to you know seismic design category A B uh, range regions as opposed to the you know pulling the big R getting a low force and then paying for all of the detailing. Okay, so moving on a little bit here. So where does the overstrength factor come from? Can you tell us about the components that make up omega and why we use them? Sure. Yeah, we. Um, we talked about systems and weak links, and so you can imagine that if I am designing my building, and uh, again, I want to make sure I have a ductile behavior or something that can absorb that energy, I need to know exactly how strong, if you will, all the elements in my building are. And I need to make sure whatever the weakest link is, is going to perform in a ductile way. And so we usually call that the fuse or the um, hinge in our building. We wanna make sure it might be your reduced beam section in your moment frame, for example. We wanna make sure we know how it's going to behave, that it does have a ductile behavior. And then we wanna make sure everything else around it is stronger. So not the question you asked, but I think it's a really important point. We do not want to apply omega sub zero to everything. I see a lot of engineers say, well, omega sub zero is seismic. I'm going to take all my seismic forces and multiply by omega sub zero. That um, does not solve our problem. And frankly, sometimes you create a worse problem because you might change what was the weak link in your building. Instead of having your nice ductile element be the weak link, instead it's a really brittle um, you know, beam column connection, for example. So Omega sub zero is intended to protect some of these elements that we believe uh, are not, we, we believe they're very important to the overall performance of our system. We do not want them to go inelastic in the event of an earthquake. So while we reduced our forces by R, for some of our elements, we're gonna amplify them back up by omega sub zero. And you asked, you know, what is, what is that omega sub zero? What is baked into that uh, particular value? And 
there's there's a lot that goes into Omega Sub-Zero. At the end of the day, a lot of it comes out in the wash, but I'll briefly mention a few of the things that go into Omega Sub-Zero. The first one has to do with design overstrength. So we recognize that when we use um, AISC, for example, we get load and resistance factors. We know that there's already some inherent overstrength provided by the code that we don't get to count on. As a second example of design overstrength would be uh, if I have a moment frame, for example, I first check it for strength, I'm good to go. And then I check it for drift and I find I need to make my, my members much larger, much more robust. So it's an element that's controlled by stiffness. I have more strength in it than I actually needed. And then similarly, architectural requirements. I don't know about you guys, but all the time I have an architect asking me, hey, I, I didn't love that four inch tube. Can you give me a six inch tube there? It looks uh, the ratios or the proportioning is better. Um, so all of those things would be packaged up into what's called design over strength or overstrength that's provided by you and me as a design engineer or by the code. So that's one. The second thing that's baked into that omega sub-zero number is material overstrength. And that one I think engineers are a little more comfortable in. It's the fact that we may specify an FY of 50, but in reality, we're no, we know we're going to get an FY that's more than 50. In fact, I think um, you know with wide flange steel, you're somewhere between maybe 15 and 30 percent uh, stronger typically than what you specify. So that's material overstrength. And then the third component that's kind of baked into Omega Sub-Zero, I'm going to call it system overstrength. Um, that is the fact that we actually have a lot of redundancy in our buildings that we don't always count on, or the fact that when I do my lateral design, I might just pull out my moment frames and do a little 2D you know, um, calc on my moment frame. But in reality, that moment frame is part of a larger building with a whole lot of beams and columns and interior partition walls. And all of those non-lateral force resisting system elements provide resistance at the end of the day, particularly after our system has yielded. So that is system overstrength. Turns out when you look at um, all of those together, each of those contribute, um, you know, 10 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent more to our actual design strength than we count on. If you multiplied all of them together, it depends on if you're looking at a moment frame or a brace frame or a special system versus an ordinary system. But you'd find that the impacts of all of those put together are on the range of two to three. And so that's where your Omega Sub-Zero comes from. You'll see most of our Omega Sub-Zeros are about two, two and a half, three. And we're putting it only on the elements that we want to protect. We do not want them to be inelastic. We want to make sure that they are safe elements in our load path when we're doing our, our design. So what components are required to be overstrengthened in a design? Thanks, Zach. It's a good one. And I mentioned I, I see a lot of engineers do this one wrong, whether it's applying it to everything or applying it to all diaphragm design, for example. I'll admit, it, even as someone who participates in ASC 7, it's not super clear. You get to ASC 7 section 12.4.3.2, and you see this load combination with overstrength. And you can you see it's an amplification on the seismic force, but it doesn't state clearly in that section where I need to apply it. So what I'm going to suggest to you here today is that there's three primary places you need to apply Omega Sub-Zero to your force. And they are all in the code, but in various places. So I'll try and simplify it. The first one is a cantilevered column system. Um, and so this actually applies in seismic design category 
really all of them, B, C, D, E, and F. So the foundation or any other element that provides overturning resistance at the base of a cantilever column needs to be designed for omega sub-zero. We don't want uh, a cantilevered column to um, fail in an earthquake. We, we don't have a lot of redundancy in those systems typically, and those elements are typically carrying gravity loads also. So we try and protect the overturning resistance by applying an omega sub-zero to a cantilevered column. Uh, the second one, again, we're trying to we're thinking about really important elements would be elements supporting discontinuous walls or frames. And again, that is seismic design category B through F. So that would be columns or beams, trusses, slabs, anything that supports a discontinuous wall or frame needs to be designed for omega sub zero forces so that, again, if we can't keep those elements elastic, if we can't keep those elements intact in an earthquake, that wall that's discontinuous doesn't have the opportunity to transfer its load to where it needs to go. So it's a really critical element in terms of load path in our system. We're going to put a little bit of extra capacity in there by putting an omega sub zero on our design. And then the third big one is collector elements. You might call them drag elements, but this one is a little different. It's seismic design category C, D, E, and F. So B gets excluded. But a collector element would be um, an element we're using to drag more force into a shear wall, for example. And so not just the collector element, but it splices and also where it connects to my shear wall or my other lateral force resisting system. All of those uh, loads need to be amplified by omega sub zero. And um, the reason for this, again, it's a critical piece of the load path. And we've seen in past earthquakes instances where we have a really beautiful shear wall that's ductally detailed. It's got all of these lovely hoop ties and bent bars. And at the end of the day, we didn't have enough capacity in our drag element to deliver the load to that shear wall. And so the shear wall is sitting there, not cracked, not having absorbed any energy. The drag connection is broken and a different portion of the building or structure had to perform where it wasn't intended to. So we think they're really important and we want to amplify them by omega sub zero. So those are the big three. There are some other nuances when you get into foundations, for example, pile anchorage, when you get into concrete uh, appendix D, when you get into steel for systems with R's greater than three. But in the load side of things, in the ASC7 side of things, those are the big three. So cantilevered columns, columns supporting or elements supporting discontinuous walls or frames and collectors. Staying with this question, I guess, there's a footnote uh, in table 12.2-1 that says, the overstrength factor, if it's greater or equal to two and a half, is permitted to be reduced by a half for a flexible diaphragm. Can you elaborate on why that is? Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I'll point you to some previous code provisions where we've seen that people read that or interpreted it that it, it can be reduced by half. So if it was three, they're using an omega sub zero of one and a half. <laughs> that is not the intent, and we've tried to tweak that language to be very clear. So if your omega sub zero was two and a half, you can use a two. And if your omega sub zero was three, you can go down to two and a half. But it is buried a little bit in the footnotes and it is only for flexible diaphragms. All right, so we also have a coefficient called rho. I think it's often confused with overstrength. Could you explain how rho is used and how they're different? Sure, rho is otherwise known as redundancy. And we actually learned, as I mentioned before, we learn a lot from earthquakes. And particularly the Northridge earthquake, we had a lot of um, educating and, and redundancy was one of them. We historically 
going back many, many years, engineers would, would typically connect all of their beam columns with moment frames. So we had very redundant buildings, uh, lots of, you know, every bay was a moment frame. And then there were increases in both the cost of labor uh, and also in or more availability in members with really large section properties. And that led engineers to instead concentrate our lateral force resisting system into just a few large elements. So we went from these really redundant buildings to these buildings where um, we had just, you know, a single moment frame in each direction or two bays of moment frames in each direction. And the 1994 Northridge earthquake taught us, as all earthquakes do, uh, that that wasn't a great idea. So after that earthquake, we modified the code to require more redundancy in buildings and seismic design category D, E, and F. And frankly, if you can't have a redundant building and you're in seismic design category D, E, and F, we slap your hand. We penalize you by putting a um, an amplification on you, and it's a, a 30% penalty. So if you're in high seismic and you can't justify that you meet uh, you have a redundant building and there's two different ways you can do that justification. If you can't do that, then you have to design your building for 30% more force. And it's really independent of that whole Omega Sub-Zero conversation. It's about encouraging engineers gently to do buildings that are redundant. And if you can't do that, we're going to just put a little more force on you and hope that uh, we come up with a, a building that performs slightly better. Well, that's it for the first half of our talk with Emily Guglielmo. We hope you liked it. Check back in a couple weeks for the second half of the episode.